Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and we're continuing today with our election education series. And in particular, we're going to be talking all about the District 1 Austin City Council election. Now, in case you're not a City Council district map expert, (laughs) uh, District 1 covers much of East Austin. You can figure out which council district you live in by visiting austintexas.gov forward slash government. Anyway, in case you missed our previous election episodes, here's a quick recap of the things you should know about the upcoming local elections in Austin. First up is that election day is November 8th and early voting starts on October 24th. And this year we have five Austin City Council seats on the ballot and a pretty competitive mayor's race that we'll all be voting for as well. And council candidates in Austin, they don't run with any official political party affiliation. You can, of course, pretty easily tell which party they align with, but it means that there's no primary election. And so instead of just seeing one Republican and one Democrat on the ballot, you're going to see a whole lot of different names. In District 1, the current city council member, Natasha Harper-Madison, is running for re-election, and three candidates are challenging her for that seat. And we're going to hear from Natasha Harper-Madison and all of the District 1 candidates in a second. But before we get to the interviews, I just wanted to share a few of my tips for things to listen for, because I know that with so many candidates running, it can feel a bit overwhelming to sift through them all and decide which candidate you're actually going to vote for. So here are my tips. Tip one, listen for the issues and priorities that candidates bring up on their own, sometimes without me even asking. This can help you figure out what's really important to them. Tip number two. It's really easy for a candidate to say they're upset because Austin is so unaffordable, but do they actually have a plan to do something about it? Listen for the specifics and for the candidates who have clearly taken the time to think about an issue. And tip number three, think about what you value and then see if a candidate's experience and qualifications matches those values. So for example, maybe you're looking for someone who has deep roots in the community and volunteers a lot. Or maybe you want someone with experience in government who knows how things work and can hit the ground running on day one. Or maybe you prefer more of an outsider candidate who can bring a fresh skill set to City Hall. Basically, the idea with all of these tips is to think about your values and priorities and then to find a candidate who matches them best. Okay, let's get to those interviews already. Oh, and for each of these interviews, I ask the candidates to participate in a little show and tell activity. Uh, Basically, I just ask them to bring one item of sentimental value or that showed something about themselves as real human people and then to share it with all of us. So you're going to hear that in the interviews. And um, if you want to see photos of what they brought, you can check that out on our Instagram page. Okay, for real this time, on to the interviews. First up is Misael Ramos. Okay, we are talking city council elections. Let's just, let's dive into it. Who are you? Why are you running? Cool. So my name is Masao Ramos. Um, been living in Austin uh, since about 05, 06. Uh, I moved out here and actually went to ACC, um, waited tables, then eventually uh, transferred to Texas State, got my degree. I actually... Uh, went to work as a foreclosure prevention specialist doing foreclosure prevention work. And basically what that means is I got to help uh, folks mitigate foreclosure and stay in their homes. Um, This was at the height of the recession. So uh, essentially it was a very much needed job at that point. Um, I eventually uh, pivoted towards business analytics. Now I manage a team of business analysts at Indeed. Um, 
And basically what that means is we partner with stakeholders and we solve issues all day. Um, so definitely something that I feel would be a good added um, skill to City Hall. Uh, outside of that, I actually do, I'm the president of the Blackland Community Development Corporation. We do affordable housing here in East Austin. I'm a part of a couple of anti-displacement uh, advocate groups and also uh, have helped my neighborhood get preservation status and uh, done some preservation work at the city. And the main reason why I'm running is because um, everything that I've done so far uh, outside of work um, in the community, I've actually brought my community with me. I think it's it, it really takes a lot of um, collaboration and partnership, um, but also time uh, management to be able to bring your community's uh, concerns, uh, updates, or ideas to the table and actually execute on them. Um, you know, I've I've accomplished uh, a lot of things, gotten programs written at the city level, um, also done affordable housing, um, and helped like craft some of the policy, and you know. I, I believe that I definitely have the skill sets that it takes to uh, be city council. Um, the main reason why I'm running is because, you know, things are get are not as affordable as they once were. Um, definitely right. trying to uh, increase affordability and also trying to push ideas like a community land trust, um, rent to own options and other options here in the city, um, and also ways to add density to. Um, I also mainly feel that we don't have enough representation at city council. Currently folks have been reaching out, trying to communicate uh, with the current representative. And there's just, there's just a wall up and people feel like they're not actually added to the process or being included. And so um, my plan is to be more accessible. Uh, once I get into city council, have more check-ins with the community and neighborhood groups um, and actually be out in the community um, that I'm going to represent. And uh, with that, you know, uh, I, I believe that comes with a lot of trust building and a lot of ability to get things done um, because you get that buy-in uh, from not only the community, but also from your colleagues uh, on the council dais as well. Uh -huh. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those issues there. Um, housing affordability, obviously a really big one. Uh, district one is a council district that I feel has really suffered from displacement and gentrification, been, been huge issues there. I saw on your website, um, you have a few points you kind of want to address if you were elected to address housing affordability. I thought we could run through some of those uh, together here now. Um, I saw you had promote responsible development, update the land development code, income-based ta tax calculation and inheritance homestead exemption. Can you run through, let's let's run through some of those quickly and explain what you mean by that. So let's start with responsible development. What does responsible development mean to you? So responsible development means to me, um, actually partnering with developers and figuring out ways to um, add density uh, and develop within neighborhoods, but also getting that neighborhood buy-in to understand what their issues are, what they need, and figuring out how does that uh, correspond to what the city needs as well. Um, I, I feel like right now this, the city and the representatives are pushing agenda mainly from their side, but not actually taking in um, what the community's wants and needs are. And given the fact that 
uh, folks on this side uh, in D1 have historically not been able to have access to certain resources, I feel that we should really be looking at um, trying to address those needs, uh, those wants, and ensuring that we're making a more inclusive uh, Austin uh, here in the east side. Do you feel like there's a way to really meaningfully engage the community while still ensuring some amount of development happens. I feel like the traditional story here in Austin is that when neighborhood groups get involved, nothing gets built. Um, do you feel like there's a way to bridge that gap? I do. Yeah, I, I believe that there's a way to bridge that gap. Um, you know, it, I find it kind of interesting, uh, mainly because, you know, you have like a lot of community folks who Four years ago, five years ago, they would have said, oh, yeah, we don't need a land development code, you know, rewrite. Um, we shouldn't do that. And now you're seeing like multiple candidates uh, in this uh, election uh, season, election round, actually saying, yeah, we, we do need one. Um, and we need to figure out like how we can develop more effectively. Um, I feel that uh, having conversations in my neighborhood and other communities as well, um, that folks' minds are changing in which they understand that there needs to be some type of progress. We can't just be, uh, we just can't stand still on this. Um, and so I do believe that, you know, that there's a middle ground that we can strike mm -hmm. uh, within here um, in District 1, but it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of of you know showing up to a neighborhood meeting um every once in a while asking what the concerns are telling informing them of major developments that are coming on and actually getting that buy-in beforehand to be able to build that trust so that when things are built um it's not the community or neighborhoods being blindsided it's more right. or less like them feeling like they're a part of that development um yeah and, and so you support updating the land development code in some capacity as well correct Mm -hmm. um, and then I want to make sure we touch on the two other things you have here, income-based tax calculation and inheritance homestead exemption. Do you want to describe what those ideas are um, as well? Yeah, so inheritance uh, homestead exemption is, a, is essentially a, a program that I'm, that I'm thinking through. And essentially what this would be uh, is more of an anti-displacement measure. Um, so when folks like, let's say, I'll just give you a situation here. So when grandma, grandpa has a house um, and they pass away, they leave it to an heir. That heir comes in and says, okay, cool. I want to, I want to keep this home. Um, so let's, you know, go ahead and spruce it up and, and do whatever so that I can stay here and keep our generation here. Um, well, a lot of times what ends up happening is the homestead uh, that grandma or grandpa had um, is reassessed. And once that uh, homestead is reassessed, the property taxes uh, are increased. Um, and a lot of times those families then uh, get reset to the new property tax uh, evaluation in which they can't afford. So they end up selling the home. Um, right. my, and my this is similar. And this is similar to the income based tax that you're talking about problem, which is that, you know, someone could be making a relatively low income. Their house continues to appreciate in value. Now they're paying property taxes on a home that's worth $600,000 or, you know, obviously many, many magnitudes more than they paid for it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That, that income-based uh, tax. And, you know, like this 
can happen to anyone. It can happen to folks on fixed income. It can happen to people with, where they lose their jobs, whatever it might might be. Um, it just allows us to secure um, those homeowners, but also, uh, you know, it reminds us that our city, our state, our county should not be in the business of taking people's homes. Right. And so the idea behind both of those, these right for the homestead inheritance homestead exemption, that would be some kind of tax exemption like we already have uh, for people who have inherited the home and income based tax calculation. You're you're trying to figure out if there's a way we can more appropriately match people's incomes to what they're paying in property taxes. Now, I think both of these are interesting ideas. I I definitely it sends off flags that probably we would get sued as a city if we passed these or the legislature would come in and try to prevent them. Do yeah. you feel like they're legal or that there's a workaround or what's kind of your, your thought process there? Yeah. So the, the, I think the inheritance one, we could probably actually get done. Uh, this is something that uh, preservation Austin is actually looking to explore mm. in an upcoming, uh, an upcoming, I guess, phase two of their preservation equity workshop. Um, and so I, I think that there's a potential of something actually being implemented there. Uh, the income-based tax assessment, that is something that would have to be um, advocated on the county and state level uh, to, to try to get that uh, completed. So uh, it would definitely take you know, some partnership and a lot of meetings and, and folks uh, being able to rally and organize to advocate for it. Um, but, you know, I, I think this is a this is a policy point that would be supported not only by uh, Democrats and Republicans, but also folks in the middle, too. Right. And so before we close, I want to get to know you a little bit better. Um, we're doing a little show and tell with our candidates. What's your kind of item for today? Oh, man. So, share about yourself. so now that I know you're an Eagles fan. <laughs> I guess my Cowboys hat. But no, I, I was going to say. Um, let, let me see what I have. So, oh, this this weird egg that I got in, uh, I think I got it in Costa Rica. We'll yeah, show a so picture of this, but it's like, really, <laughs> it is really weird. It's like a little ceramic egg with feet on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a egg. Yeah. Ceramic egg with, with feet and legs. Like, uh, and I guess it, it says like, you're never fully hatched. So you're continuing to grow. Um, that's how I took it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess art, you know, can be interpreted in different ways. I love it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and share today. Really appreciate it. Cool. 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 Anytime. Thank you. And that was Missile Ramos. Next up, we're going to hear from Clinton Rary. Okay. I'm here with Clinton. We're talking city council. Let's dive into it. Who are you? Why are you running? My name is Clinton Rary, and the reason why I'm running is because I'm seeing everything that happened in California that led to high homelessness, high crime, and high cost of living happening exactly right here. And I didn't want to run or need to run. I, I have to run to stop this radical uh, policies from coming here and displacing a lot of residents. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about some of that. I assume what you're getting here is some of our response to homelessness. Maybe we'll start with that. How do you feel like council has um, handled our homelessness crisis? And, and what do you feel like you'd like to do differently if you were elected? So with the city, how they've kind of handled the homeless problem here in Austin, literally Mayor Adler flew to California, Oregon and Seattle to figure out what they're doing wrong to solve the homeless problem. So we don't do it here. 
but he literally took their blueprint and duplicated exactly what they're doing with the housing first agenda. And it's a detachment for, from, from reality that housing solves homelessness. That was the case that California wouldn't have any homeless population at all. Um, and so we got to come in from a treatment approach with um, a shelter approach as well. So um, creating a, a shelter where we can house all the individuals and then work with our local nonprofits and our um, local systems that are actually working like Community First Village, the Salvation Army Rehab Center. And then another um, example just south of us that even California is now duplicating in San Francisco, Haven for Hope. So California came to Texas to figure out how to solve homelessness, but Texas or the Mayor Adler went to California to figure out what to do. Um, so just using the systems that already work and stop trying to reinvent the wheel and waste millions of dollars in the process of doing so. Um, can, I, no, go ahead. can I ask when you talk about sheltering, can you talk more what that means? Because it's like we have a homeless shelter, right? The ARJ, and that's faced a lot of criticism. I imagine you're you're thinking about a slightly different vision there. What do you mean when you talk about uh, providing shelter and treatment services? So a shelter and treatment sources would be like the Haven for Hope model, where they do have a barrier of entry, um, where the, I believe it's nine months you have to be a resident uh, in San Antonio to have access to their facilities. That way they're not attracting homeless people from around the nation, because cities don't have the resources to support their state's homeless problem, let alone the nation's homeless problem. So having a barrier entry will uh, stop people from migrating here from other cities or other states. Um, that we're already seeing in Austin because I've been going around the homeless encampments for about six weeks and a little over 60% of the people that are facing homelessness aren't even from Austin or Austin uh, or Austinites. Um, but you'd hear exactly the opposite from Echo who goes around and does head counts, but they don't do a thorough head count because um, they say that we have about 4,500 people facing homelessness here in Austin. It's closer to 10,000 if they actually go deeper into the woods like I have been doing. And actually have you counted that many people? I mean, where do you come up with that number, 10,000? So it's right around a little over 8,500 that I've counted so far. And I haven't even accounted for the people that are living in their cars or the people that are able to get a motel room probably for the night and get off the streets. So I'm not even accounting for those individuals because they're kind of even more hidden because you don't know where they're parking to sleep in their car or what motels they're staying at. Um, but from the people living on the street and people in the, living in the woods, it's about a little over 8,500 that we've uh, tabulated so far between me and this other individuals that have been going around um, all over Austin and documenting the camps. And so you talked about Haven for Hope um, and wanting to replicate that model. Why do you feel like it could work in Austin? And can you tell people if they're not familiar what that what that is? What How is that different than what we're doing? So Haven for Hope, um, they have a barrier of entry that stops people from just coming to the city to live on the streets, but it also has all the resources that they need there and a place to sleep, but they have strict rules to actually live there. So you, unlike here in Austin, when they give guaranteed housing in like the hotels that they're buying, there are no rules. There's no requirement to work with a social worker. There's no requirement to not do your drugs. They actually, here in Austin, we have a harm reduction um, program that they actually give free crack pipes to the homeless to enable and continue their substance abuse problems. So we need to have a tough love approach but be there to actually help the individual provide the resources and require them to actually take part in these resources if they want a bed or if they want um, to get off the street. 
Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about policing really quick. Another issue when I was going through your website, it seems like you have some concerns about. Um, if you were elected, what would you like to see council be doing differently when it comes to policing and public safety? So doing more public outreach, I've seen a lot of the officers already kind of doing that on their own to rebuild that trust within the community. Um, So the police are already doing that on their own without the city council's help, but getting the city council on their side, because we've seen since 2018, um, a majority of the council does not support the police, but now they're kind of, you're kind of seeing them backpedal and say that they're starting to support the police, even though I believe 90% of them voted to defund the police and they, to this day, they say they never defunded it. But the only reason they can say that is because Abbott forced them to give back the money, but didn't go back to the officers. They went to all these reimagined policing programs instead. Um, That's why we don't have as many officers is because they shut down the academy for two years, um, which destroyed our um, attrition rate. Um, We've already had 35 officers retire this year or leave the force. Um, and I believe we're um, shorthanded by 300 officers. So getting that staffing level back to where it was before 2018, so we can respond to calls. So detectives aren't doing patrols and they can actually go back to solving cases. Um, get, reinstating our park patrol because we don't have uh, officers patrolling parks. Um, so safety is a big issue that's lacking here in Austin because our police force is so stretched thin and they're working so many hours and with, with that overtime, because we're hitting record overtime right now, too, and with the more officers working overtime, more hours on the street, there's going to be more chronic fatigue, and mistakes will happen. And it's not because they want to make mistakes. It's just they're tired, and when you're tired, you make mistakes. And the last thing we want to have is a, a police force that is chronically fatigued trying to keep us safe. Do you feel like there's a way to... Um increase the number of officers, you know, back to kind of fill in those vacancies while still, you know, the the reason a lot of these things were made is because there was a genuine public outcry from the community that our police academy wasn't training officers the way the community wanted, that there was concerns about police accountability. Do you feel like there's a way to have a fully staffed police force that that is accountable for the public or that addresses some of those issues? Where do you stand on that? I mean, I, I believe we need to have more de-escalation training um, going on within our police department, and that's an ongoing training. If it's we're doing it um, semi-annually, so they're doing it not just through the academy, but once they've graduated, they do at least once, maybe a year, maybe twice a year, um, where they're doing that. But also getting our city council involved in these training exercises that the officers go through, so they understand what they're dealing with on a daily basis, because most of our city council haven't even done ride-alongs. And if they have done ride-alongs, they've done like an hour or two ride-along, and then they go into the office and do a photo op saying that they did a ride-along. So actually getting the city council to go on the street with the officers to see what they deal with. Because a lot of the public outcry are from the Austin Justice Coalition, which their main goal was to dismantle the police force. Chris Harris was a big uh, proponent of this, and he stated this publicly that he's trying to defund the police force any way possible. And that's what they're trying to do with the oversight committee, because it wasn't a truly oversight. It was a power grab to dictate how the police force was ran, how punishments should be involved in dealing with contra- uh, the contract negotiations, which has nothing to do with police oversight. Um, let's talk about affordability. Another big issue facing our city, housing affordability. If you were elected, what would you like to do to kind of tackle that 
a big crisis facing our city right now? So first we've had to go with moving forward to the balanced budget and stop spending more money. I mean, our city council is treating our tax dollars like monopoly money. They're just spending on everything possible that they want to. Um, so creating a balanced budget and then looking at our department services, we're the second most expensive city to bid, build here in Austin behind Liberty Hill that has a population of 5,000 people. And so why are we the second most expensive city to build on when we own our own water source and we own our own energy source where the department services is supposed to support your infrastructure if you don't have a large property tax pool to pull from to support that. So slashing our uh, construction fees that it costs to build, expediting our permitting process. So if a permit isn't waiting a year or two to get approved for let's say a residential neighborhood or a multifamily um, complex. And so we get it to where if it's not approved within 30 days, it's automatically approved. Because um, especially with our department services, they only show up to the office three days a week. And a lot of them aren't experts or have a lot of knowledge in construction project management. So actually hiring qualified individuals that understand construction project management to handle our department services. So it goes smoothly and uh, effectively to get construction going and it's not a huge delay times. Uh, this will allow uh, mom and pops to actually compete in the housing market in development, which will drive down costs and have more abundant housing. That way we're not having bidding wars where you have 20 or 30 people bidding on one house that inflates the evaluations and then your property taxes go up and then you can't afford your property taxes. Um, before we close, we want to get to know you a little bit more as a person. Um, we're doing our little show and tell activity. What do you have for us today? So me and my wife, we are um, big gardeners and uh, about re reducing our footprint. Um, so we have 33 raised garden beds in our backyard wow. where we're growing our own uh, vegetables and fruit. Um, and then we also have chickens too. So they're no, we just got the chickens recently, so they're not laying eggs just yet, but they should be in the next month or two, start laying eggs. Um, and each chicken lays about 300 eggs per year. And we have nine of them. So we're going to have plenty of Whoa. eggs. Whoa. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Appreciate for having me on. And that was Clinton Rary. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Melanie House Dixon. All right, I'm here with Melanie. We're talking city council. Let's dive right into it. Who are you? Why are you running? Hi, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me to this to this wonderful, wonderful interview. Um, my name is Melanie House Dixon, and I am running for city council for District One. Why am I running? Very, very great question. I'm running because my community has expressed a great desire and need for, um, in terms of dissatisfaction. Um, they're very dissatisfied thus far with how District 1 has been treated uh, with us having no voice, with us not with transparency not uh, being shown and just being totally overlooked as a community. And so the community right now is looking for someone who can represent them uh, uh, effectively and who, who will speak for them uh, when the need arises. And that would be that would be me. And when you say overlooked or not being listened to, what do you mean by that more specifically? Because obviously there is a council member representing District 1. That's who you're running against um, mm -hmm. in part. Like, 
what, where do you feel like these gaps are? What do you mean by not being listened to? When I say not being listened to, I'm referencing, uh, concerns that are that 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 occur within the within the community and when contact is made with our current um, representative there's no response um, there is not a a callback or a follow-up um, there is just a total dis a disregard for that and that has that has transpired throughout the entire uh, throughout over the entire district um, and the community is very upset over that um, I'll give a I'll give another um, example of, of what I'm talking about, and that would be our valid petitions. Um, there is policy that we as a community can petition a certain type of development um, within our area and have it and have it honored. Um, we have done so. The community as a whole, district one as, as, as a whole has done such. Um, I, I ask you how many of those valid petitions have been honored? Uh, I tell you very, very few. And this is what do you what do you mean by what do you mean by a petition like so a developer is going to build a project perhaps the neighborhood is opposed to that development or wants certain things in that development and writes a petition to try and convince them to do so like what do you mean by a petition a petition is a is a document that that the city proposed to allow the community to oppose a certain type of request uh, from a developer. And, and there are certain guidelines that, that surround that, that, that petition. For example, any residence that is 200 um, yards uh, feet around the circumference of the development will be, are given the, um, the priority for opposing that particular development. Um, and so um, th these are, this is, this is one document, one, one process, one policy that has been put into place that has not been, that has not been honored. Many, many communities within our D1 have, have positioned, have proposed valid petitions as a way of opposition, as a way of maybe working with the developer, uh, to, or to, or to slow down the development so that, so that, you know, understandings can be made, negotiations can be done. And so th these valid petitions have been just been ignored. There may be an issue where a, a community just don't want a five story building in their residential neighborhood. And so we, it's been petitioned. So when, it, when that goes through the process, uh, the, um, the policy process, then it, it gets ignored. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Let's, let's talk, let's dive a little deeper into that. Talk about some of the issues, right? So um, I think part of what you're getting at here, obviously one issue in Austin housing affordability. Um, I imagine, you know, a lot of when I hear these kind of conversations, the pushback to what you're saying is, you know, this feeling like neighborhood associations are holding up development, holding up the construction of housing that we really need. What, what's your approach to that? You know, what do you feel like, obviously it seems like you have some, some, disagreement with that kind of an approach, what would you want to be doing in order to increase housing affordability in Austin? Um, affordability, housing affordability is really, really a very complex issue that we're facing right now. Um, affordability, let me answer one, two of your questions first. Yeah. Um, in terms of affordability, we need to look at 
truly what is affordability. The market rate right now is, a, is, is, is dictating what the affordability rate is. And as a way of that, and, and, and as that continues, um, the market rate, we as a community are experiencing such things as inequities and gentrification. It's mm -hmm. really eliminating and it's isolating a certain group of persons, such as our artistic community, our, our educators, our service staff people, even, even some of the persons that, that, that reside within our local, our local areas, such as some of our businesses. And so with that said, we as a community are not opposed to development. What we are opposed to is the fact of what it's doing to the community, how it's gentrifying, how it's isolating, how it's 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 causing inequities, uh, inequalities within our within within our community, and so we want to see, we would like to see more equity, more equality across the board. Yeah. So so how do we balance this, right? Because it's like what you're talking about here is this fear that when new development projects come in, they displace people because they're expensive, but if that's the case, then how do we build enough housing to maybe lower those market rate uh, prices? Or is it a different model? Like, you know, if it seems like we have to build housing somewhere in order to bring that price down in theory, or do you disagree well, with that? And that's only in theory. And I do disagree. I don't think building more housing is going to bring the price down. I think building more housing is going to do just that. It's going to build more housing. You still have to have people to qualify to meet the standards of the of the building of the new of the new construction that's coming up, and we, that's what we do not have. So mm -hmm. our current our current um, our current system that right now is affording uh, constant rate uh, rental rates increases or the marketing rate increases. That's something that we would we we should look into, and or if there is a mechanism or a, a, a process where um, there should be a negotiating, some type of negotiating process where the developer and the community could come together, where the developer can actually look at putting something into the community. I know that that's not something that that council can can get involved in, but that could be something that, the, that we as a community can look into and be encouraged by council, mm -hmm. not discouraged. Um, we've been talking a lot about housing affordability. I want to make sure we touch on a few different issues here. If you were elected, what's another priority that you would really want to spend some time and energy on other than housing affordability? Well, well, we're looking at housing affordability. We, we haven't even talked about the homeless and the unhoused, which, mm -hmm. which in my in my opinion, falls under that under that yeah, umbrella. Let's go for it. Tell, talk more. What would you do if you were elected differently than what our current city council is doing when it comes to homelessness? Well, homelessness is a big, big issue that we that we're facing here in Austin as well, and that's a very, very good question because there's so many components that go with that. We're providing housing. We're quote saying we provide housing for the homeless, but there is really no infrastructure uh, to create a quality of life for the homeless. So we have to go in and look at various aspects. And I know that there's some 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 initiatives that are out there that are trying to do this, um, that have been working at it. But this is something that we have been talking about for the past 30 years. And so why, why all of a sudden now, you know, do we look at this? So let's let's not recreate the will. Let's just take what we already have in place 
it start initiating it and start partnershiping with some of our nonprofits that are that are working with the homeless, working with you know the um, the ex offenders, putting uh, processes in place where we can where we can provide transitioning and a quality of life for those that 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 want to to have that quality of life. Yeah, and it, how is that different than what we're doing now? Just more of it, or partnering with to, different organizations? Like, what's what's the difference? The difference is, is that we're not implementing it. We have we have certain structures, certain processes. Uh, studies have been conducted as to what can be done. Other cities have been um, studied in terms of what they're doing, and and how we can maybe impart in, in, in some of what they're doing into Austin. Of course, Austin is a is a very unique city and we have our own unique issues but we can at least take some of what we've learned and apply and take what what what's needed for us and apply it to our our own specific situations mm -hmm. um before we close we want to get to know the candidates a little bit more as individuals as people um do you have a show and tell item for us today um and what would that be uh, up to you whatever you would like that whatever you would like that to be something that tells a little bit more about you and who you are oh uh, there's so much um i am family oriented i love family i love the fact that i am a grandmother of 20 wow congratulations um, thank you and a great grandmother of 3 and so family is very important and legacy um, for me is very important. And um, so when I look at where I am right now in my life, um, I want to be able to leave my children some parts of my legacy here in Austin. I don't want to be one of those that have been gentrified out of Austin. Um, and so this is why I'm working very, very hard and diligently to, to offset that from every area that's possible, that's needed in order to to sustain a quality of life for me and my family here in Austin. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. And that was Melanie House Dixon. Next up, we're gonna listen in on an interview I recorded with the current Austin City Council member, Natasha Harper-Madison. Uh, I'm here with Natasha. We're talking city council. Let's just dive into it. Who are you? Why are you running for re-election? Hi there. I am Natasha Harper-Madison, and I am running for re-election to the Austin City Council representing District 1 in a lot of ways to, to finish what I started, but in many more ways to, to take on some of the newer challenges that I know are going to be helpful to my successor. Um, I, I feel like District 1 is the kind of rapidly changing district that's going to have implications for several council members to come. Yeah. So let's talk about some of that. Let's look back on your, uh, you know, last term in office. What's one thing you're really proud of, an accomplishment that you want to share? And then maybe one thing that you feel like is unfinished business that you're really excited to get into next term if you're reelected. Uh, well, it's a couple of things, you know, I'm really, yeah. really excited about our Northeast area plan. I think if for no other reason, I'm, I'm starting to, you know, by way of protocol, help folks figure out how to approach district one. When you have 
you know, uh, an area like a district one that's been disinvested in for so long and the opportunity to atone, to reconcile for that disinvestment is not going to manifest itself by way of upfront cash dollars, then we really do have to remove all other barriers. And in my mind's eye, one of those barriers is looking at the elements of District 1 um, piecemeal, one by one. We absolutely have to look at them like a package. And so I'm really I'm really proud of the, the area plan that we put together and look forward to to doing more area plans for the district. But then adjacent to that, I'm very, very proud of the $300 million worth of anti-displacement dollars we were able to connect to Project Connect. Yeah, and then um, I suspect this question will lead into the next one, but what about unfinished business? And let's talk about housing. <laughs> I know that's been a big priority of yours. I'm sure it's something you wanna continue to work on. Um, what 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 would be your approach or what is your approach to tackling housing affordability in Austin? What do you feel like we can be doing next? Well, I could talk about, you know, uh, housing and affordability and or, you know, unfinished business. And, and that would be it. Right. You know, yeah. coming in, I, I was on the tail end of, of a long and arduous planning process for um, the rewrite of the land development code and had right. the opportunity to, to cast what I thought were really innovative, strong votes um, towards removing barriers to producing the housing yield that we need. Um, and not having had the opportunity to fully recognize that is certainly unfinished business, in which case I'll just move forward um, with recognizing that without the comprehensive land development code rewrite, we're going to have to do what we can. And I think in a lot of ways, that's that's really just going to be some specific emphasis on removing barriers to the production of housing. Yeah, um, you voted for uh, code next rewrites. Obviously, that's been held up in the court, so pretty stalled out. Um, what does removing barriers look like then into the future? What do you feel like we can be doing to make it easier for more affordable housing to be built and more housing in general? Well, you know, I think the way to look at that is, you know, make it easier relative to what, right? We're in Austin, Texas, and the production of housing, the rewrite of our land development code in a lot of ways was stalled um, because there are folks who are what I call housing hesitant. Um, they are not as uh, they are not as enthusiastic about jumping in headfirst to not only take care of what it is that we're deficient on in terms of our housing supply, but get ahead of you know creating the Austin of the future that will have sufficient housing. In which case, I'd like to focus on things that we can all agree on that are doable. So some of those barriers that we can all agree on are our planning process. That whole permitting and planning process, I believe, is flawed. I believe it's not as nimble as it could be. While I recognize that so much of the city of Austin's practices and um, how we approach creating policy is clunky. And there are reasons for that. You know, it's not intended to go fast. That way there's some opportunities to build in fail safes and have some oversight. But things like, you know, permitting processes, adding a year to a construction project, which basically changes all the numbers, especially in an, in an environment like today's, where labor costs are up, construction costs are up, building materials are either up or unavailable. Um, so there's a I think there's a, a tsunami of complications that are presenting themselves as a direct result of both the pandemic and, you know, just sort of inflation related cost increases. Yeah, you know, and the, the other candidates that are, are running against you in this campaign, you know, I think some of them 
might be fair to characterize have been more in the camp of, of neighborhood groups who have been hesitant to development and don't feel like more housing uh, can actually helps with housing affordability and it actually can drive displacement. What and what do you feel like, I don't know, what's your approach to that? How do you work with those neighborhood associations? What's been your approach to it's like this constant dichotomy in Austin, right? It's like, how do we build more housing? Not just in Austin. <laughs> yeah, and not push people out. Where? How has your approach been to this issue? Well, it's interesting you should ask me that because it's definitely a part of the suite of options that I'd like to produce to be able to bypass those barriers. And for what it's worth, the, the neighborhood association's involvement in the zoning process, I believe can be a barrier, frankly. I think having a group of people without the necessary subject matter expertise weigh in on really important zoning cases is problematic, frankly. Um, and I'm not saying that neighbors should not weigh in. I'm saying that we as a municipality have a distinct obligation to make certain that everybody speak in the same language. So if we're all speaking land use, but they don't speak land use, how on earth can we ask them to advocate appropriately for their neighborhoods? So when they show up to the table and, and don't necessarily agree with what our prescription is for producing the yield, but then also subsequently we recognize that they didn't have the opportunity on the front end to be a part of the conversation and learn the terminology and learn what the needs are, then I think, you know, I think that's on us. And it's also, frankly, on that that whole builder, developer ecosystem, all of them have a distinct obligation as well to make sure that our constituents know what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, and, and not speak directly to folks. Um, I, I think we just need to equalize the conversation in a lot of ways. And that's something that I'm working on. In fact, I was able to take a study trip recently to the East Coast. I went to Boston and Baltimore and New York City. And, you know, I sort of chuckled when you said this is a problem in Austin. I chuckled because mm -hmm. what I'm recognizing is it's not an Austin unique problem. It's a nationwide problem. It's an international problem. Housing is a problem in Barcelona, in Morocco, in parts of South America. I mean, it, it, housing shortages and supply shortages are not unique to Austin. And so um, kind of related, I want to touch on transportation as well. Another big mm -hmm. component here, um, Project Connect approved by voters in 2020. We're now in this implementation process. Again, we have the component around anti-displacement. Um, what do you want to see council doing to kind of steward this project along, right? There's been concerns like it's getting too expensive. What, you know, the nitty gritty part has to happen now. What role do you feel like you can play in that? You know, it's interesting you should ask that. I think in a lot of ways, you know, the council has direct influence and or purview over certain things. But this is one where I really think we need to be leaning harder on our transit authority and our subject matter experts. I don't think council should weigh in on matters where we don't have that direct technical knowledge. And I, for one, don't. And, you know, not that I could speak for any of my colleagues, but to my knowledge, none of them have training in transit transportation infrastructure. Um, in which case, I think there's a lot we have to, to learn yet before we can ask for specific technical items. Uh, I think on the, on the front end, something we can do reasonably is go ahead and set up our expectations and the parameters around displacement prevention. And as the project increases in cost, like I said earlier about housing, everything's going to increase in cost, every single thing, based on you know some things that we don't have any control over whatsoever, including inflation, including you know the financial impacts of a what 
it's still going. I mean, we're going on three years of a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. I don't know that anybody will be able to predict what the true impact of the of the pandemic has had on us. But I can tell you, you know, uh, uh, anecdotally, I, I'm definitely seeing it directly with my constituents, with small business owners, with big business owners, with people who build stuff, people who are the builders of the stuff. Everybody is being affected, in which case, how can we not expect for a major, massive, you know, transformational um, infrastructure project to not increase in cost? Yeah, and you know, kind of tied to all these things, District 1, as you mentioned, is a district that's already suffered greatly from gentrification and displacement, um, has also shouldered the majority of Austin's affordable housing development. What do you feel like in particular we can be looking at for District 1 in order to prevent even more gentrification and displacement or uh, and preserve you know, some of the small businesses that have managed to, to hold on um, what, what support can we offer them as a council? You know, can you offer them as council to figure out, I guess, how to prevent even more? I'd say that's multi-tiered. And -hmm. I think the first tier is to be a truth teller, to, to be entirely, completely honest with our constituents, even when the truth is difficult to hear, Mm -hmm. even when the truth feels unfair. So to say that we can prevent gentrification or displacement, I'm not willing to say that. I don't think Mm -hmm. it's true. I don't think those are things that you can prevent. I do think those are things you can mitigate with smart, pragmatic, practical policy that can be applied unilaterally. I think those things, you know, um, definitely include, uh, so for example, you know, most of 183 East to Decker is, you know, very much sparse. There's lots of room for building there. We know it's coming. And so, you know, unlike Central East Austin, which, you know, didn't have much in the way of um, uh, displacement and gentrification mitigation, we have very few community development corporations in Central East Austin. So I've, I've already put in a request to the city manager's office to determine how we go about creating more community development corporations, how we go mm. about establishing some community land trust, how we go about doing some land banking, and which one of our entities is the most appropriate. Is it the newly formed Facilities Management Corporation? Is it the newly formed Austin Economic Development Corporation? Um, so we are definitely doing our deep dives into research around how to put those protections in place. Right. Before the development even really gets rolling out there. Exactly. I think, frankly, I think we're two decades behind. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just doing the best that I can with what I was handed. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely feel like we're behind the eight ball and just trying to play catch up on that. Yeah. Uh, So we talked about transportation and affordability. What's on one other priority you'd really want to focus on in your second term? Workforce development. I think as for as many conversations as we have about affordability um, that center around how to make things more accessible to folks, I think we way too often forget about making certain that people earn a fair wage. People should be able to make more money to be able to afford more things. Mm. I think one of the largest problems with affordability is that a lot of our constituents don't have great training for a trade field or, you know, the plumbers and pipe fitters or the electrical union, those are really great 
professional skilled jobs that not enough of our folks have access to. Um, so I would, I would focus a lot, very heavily on workforce development um, to add that economic opportunity component to the conversation around affordability. There are things that we can do to make this city more affordable that don't have anything to do with producing more in the way of access. It has everything to do with making certain that our constituents are more financially independent. Mm-hmm. And then before we close, we've been doing a little show and tell with our candidates. I know you're on the run today, but if you've got an item that describes you well or an anecdote or story, just something so we can learn a little bit more about you as an individual. You betcha. So if I had an item that describes me and that people who know me would recognize, it would be one of my gardening shirts. Mm. I have uh, shirts that protect me from the mosquitoes and the heat and wick sweat, and they are all filthy. They're (laughs) just permanently stained with dirt because I love, love, love gardening. It's my favorite thing. And that was Natasha Harper-Madison and the last of our candidate interviews for today. If you want to learn more about all the candidates running, be sure to follow our Instagram page because we'll be publishing an election guide just for District 1. Also, if you click on the show notes for this episode, you can find links to all of the candidates' websites. And that's pretty much our show for today. But stay tuned because we'll be publishing episodes on all of the city council elections in the coming weeks. Oh, and don't forget to vote!